Welcome to the Accessible Yoga Podcast, where we explore how to make space for everyone in the yoga community. This podcast is brought to you by the Accessible Yoga Association, a nonprofit organization focused on accessibility and equity in yoga. Hi, I'm your host, Jeevana Heyman. My pronouns are he and him, and I serve as the director of Accessible Yoga. And I'm your co-host, Amber Carnes. My pronouns are she and her, and I serve as president of the Accessible Yoga Board of Directors. Hi, everyone. We're back with uh, another episode of the Accessible Yoga Podcast. Uh, this is Jeevana, and I'm here with Amber. Hi, Amber. Hey, how's it going? I'm okay. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, hanging in there. Yeah. I feel like, uh, I don't know. I have some challenging life stuff going on right now, but as I look around, so does almost everyone. So I know, so right? Pe- people get that. <laughs> How it's about you? Challenging, it's a challenging time. Um, well, I'm, I'm doing good, actually. My, I always tell you, like, I think about my kids, like in a way it's so bad how attached I am to how they're doing and like, well, they're both doing kind of better at this moment. And so that makes me feel better. But, um, when I try to separate myself from them, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing okay. <laughs> well, I mean, they are a part of you, so I think, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. I'm glad they're uh, doing good. That's always yeah. the- got to make your life a little easier to not worry so much. And, you know, yeah. that's like the parents, uh, perpetual state sometimes. <laughs> right. And, you know, they're getting older. And so it's funny. It's like, it's one thing when they're little and like, you literally are responsible for like their life or death, you know, and like their life or death situation here. If they're, if you're, if you're going to keep them from like running into the street or right. whatever, but like my kids are older and, you know, my son moved away and it's just like, I gotta, I gotta kind of let go, but it's hard. Right. Right. Definitely. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm excited to talk about our topic with you today. I, I love this question of, you know, how we, you know, I don't know what the word is like live the teachings while we're teaching. Like how do we become, um, or what's the word we used Embody. How do we embody the teachings in the way we teach yoga Right. Like, and, is there a yogic way to teach yoga? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I just want to say also like that, like we're, no one's perfect. Like it's not, a, it's not about being like a perfect being and enlightened in order to be a yoga teacher. It's just like, and making the effort, you know, like trying to really reflect on, um, I think mostly the, the way we're, the way we're presenting yoga and if we're doing it in a yoga, in a yogic way. Right. 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 Yeah. And I mean, just to, you know, maybe contrast what we're talking about today. So we're going to explore some, some themes from the yoga teachings, uh, some of the yamas, niyamas and that kind of stuff and how they apply to, um, like to our teaching practice or some ways that we think that could work. But, you know, we probably all experienced yoga classes that were not very yogic in nature, but instead felt like, I don't know, a workout where everyone had to compare themselves to each other or, I don't know, a place where you felt excluded or something like that. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of important for us as teachers to like look at not only are we kind of, you know, helping guide our students through this stuff, but like, is there ways that as teachers, we can actually like, I don't know, live by example, kind of like model for our students, the stuff we're trying to teach them about. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, I, I think as 
what it's what makes yoga teaching so special and challenging. Um, you know, it's like that it's, it's a living practice that permeates all aspects of our lives. And I think it's, um, I think teaching can become a form of practice. And so that's how, that's how I like to approach it. Like I think of teaching as another aspect of my personal practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that helps me because it's a practice. It's not like, I'm again, I'm not perfect at it. I'm just learning and continually learning and messing up and learning. Um, and, and I agree. I think it's, I think the point here is that yoga is not always taught this way. And, and I know for myself, like, when I take other classes, I have to be careful because I tend to get into a really competitive mindset. That's my challenge. And I've actually injured myself in, in classes over the years. And I think it's because of that, because I'm kind of outwardly focused and wanting approval or wanting to keep up or whatever it is, you know, and right. I'm just like, that's not, that's not what yoga is about, you know, and it's not the teacher's fault when I hurt myself, but I also, I often wonder if the teacher could, I don't know, like just remind me as a participant of focusing inward or not being competitive and all those things that might help me to not, um, yeah, to not get hurt or to just, you know, to not go to that kind of competitive place. Right. And I I think that, you know, everyone's practice is their own and everybody has a personal responsibility on, you know, what they bring to the mat and what they decide to do with it. But I think that you and I both know there's definitely ways that we can, as teachers, you know, create an environment that is non-competitive and that's about curiosity and inquiry and being present in our bodies. Or we can create an environment like with our words, with the way we teach that encourages competition and that holds up poses in like a hierarchy of like, advanced and beginner and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so, um, we want to just share some of the tools that we've worked with, that we've seen work for, um, creating this environment where students, you know, feel like they can connect more with their personal practice. And it's about what's actually happening in the moment and not some sort of like expectation of what, you know, a yoga class is supposed to look like or something like that. Yeah. What is the, what has been the most painful experience for you? I mean, is there something that stands out for you, like an experience you had that felt not like yoga? You know what I mean? You know, I mean, I just, I would say there's not like one big, you know, traumatic thing that's happened, but I feel like many times over the years, you know, before I kind of, I feel like discovered like the bigger practice of yoga, you know, all the eight limbs, um, back when I was more attending like classes that I would say were like, a workout class with some breathing. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I've encountered a lot of like diet culture stuff in yoga, whether that's, you know, walking in the studio and people assuming that I'm brand new or that I'm there to lose weight or that, you know, whatever about me because of the way my body looks, um, to, you know, in class people assuming what I can or can't do, you know, there's just a lot of, I think ways that, um, internalized, uh, bias around bigger bodies and stuff like that, um, shows up in yoga. And so a lot of the uncomfortable stuff for me has been that is more about, you know, the teacher assuming something about me based on the way that I look rather than kind of trying to like meet me where I am as a student rather than what the preconceived notion is in their head of like, someone in that type of body and what they can do and what they are here and what it's all about. 
I don't know if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, I do. Um, and it's funny. The thing that comes to my mind too is like, I don't, I don't want people to think we're talking about being very, um, like just what's the word acting the part. Like, I'm not talking about just like acting all yogic, like I'm all peaceful and happy all the time. And that's not, I think what we're trying to say, do you know what I mean? Like there's kind of a cliche yoga teacher vibe that. Yeah. We don't want you to like not. get a gauzy scarf and only talk in a voice that sounds like this. And <laughs> like, that's not what we're talking about. Like the love and light at all times, good vibes only like, no. Um, no. So mm-hmm. maybe we should just jump into it. I know there is. <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> let's talk specifics um, okay. about, uh, a be- I don't want to say a better way, but a way that we've seen work for a lot of our students and, and for us as a, a way of hopefully yeah. honoring these teachings. Yeah. So where do you want to start? Well, I think we could start at the beginning. Like I want to, we're going to mostly talk about teachings from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which is you know, it's still considered the main source for teachings about yoga, although I know there's controversy about it, but it's still where we're looking, you know, for information about the broader practice beyond just asana. Um, and I think we can look at, you know, one of the first sutras, uh, 1.3. Um, I can, well, I don't know, I can give a little context and then read it if that, should I do that? Yeah, that sounds good. All right. So, I mean, most people are familiar with, if you're familiar with the sutras, you probably know the second sutra, which is, um, the rest, well, this is Swami Satchitananda's translation. The restraint of the modifications of the mind stuff is yoga. And there's many, many different translations of this sutra, which is basically like what we think of as kind of the theme of the work we're doing, or even the definition of yoga, right? That we're trying to quiet the mind, calming the mind is yoga. And then what's I think even more beautiful is the next sutra three where Patanjali says, um, then the seer self or the self abides in its own nature. And I just, I think it's a beautiful and important idea in yoga. And that what, what, what it means to me is that we actually begin with this positive, right? We begin with the fact that we have this spirit, Atman or Purusha are the Sanskrit words you can use for that. Like you are that spirit and it's the thoughts that have kind of um, covered that up or hidden it away from you. And to me that it's a very different philosophy than we use in normally in the West in our, you know, in our, in the capitalist system we live in, which is about getting stuff and, and attainment. And in yoga, it's really about like undoing, um, and remembering who we are. And so it's a, it, to me, it's very powerful in that way. So again, it, Patanjali is saying that when you quiet the mind, you experience the spirit or the peace that's already there within you. And, and the way I, I wanted to just reflect, the way I try to practice that as a teacher is simply to recognize that we all share this same spirit so that all the students that come to me, I know that even though they're, they're each individual and they have different bodies and minds and very different lives, each of them, they have this essential part, this essence that is all the same. And that part of them is whole, right? Part of them is already complete. Um, yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah. Like, um, you know, I think that 
sometimes I like to think about this in terms of like our humanity, you know, <laughs> that each of us is different. Mm. We have a different lived experience. We have all of that, but we do have this kind of like embodied, weird, alive experience that we are all sharing. And, you know, I think the yoga teaching speaks to that when it talks about, um, when it talks about this concept and that, I don't know. I, I think that sometimes this can be used in a like spiritual bypassy way of like, well, mm-hmm. we're all the same. We don't need to see color or gender or, you know, like those kinds of conversations. But I think like it's not really that way. It's more like everybody already. I don't know. Maybe as a teacher, the way I apply this is by saying like, actually, I'm not here to fix any of these people. Mm-hmm. You know, I might have some knowledge that might be helpful. I might be able to guide them through a practice that will help them get more in touch with themselves. Um, you know, remember who they are, uh, be able to connect more with their bodies, learn to retrust their bodies, learn to be, you know, yoga is that spiritual practice of like self-awareness and turning that attention inward and then figuring out how you can connect with those other people that share that thing with you, you know? And so for me, I think that the way, um, a lot of us understand things like, I don't know, wellness or medicine or yoga or any of these things that people turn to for, let's say, help or relief in some way means that, you know, as a teacher, we have some, you know, special knowledge that we need to give to them. Or if only they would practice this way, then we could fix or heal them or whatever, you know. And so for me, it's really about like, I guess, seeing each student as the like whole and individual and complete human that they already are. And that is a different mindset where you're kind of approaching someone as, Mm -hmm. I don't know, an equal, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense, rather than this sort of like power differential that sometimes as teachers, it's like, well, we know better. Um, or that we're here to somehow like, show them what they lack. Do you know what I mean? Even though if I think a lot of times people wouldn't say it out loud that way, that the mindset can sort of be, well, if you would only do X, Y, and Z, then you would be Mm -hmm. where you want it to be. Or like if, if you did this practice right or something like that. Right. And to me, it's like sometimes it, it means being a mirror for people to see their own wholeness. And so I think, I find a lot of what I end up doing in a class is just kind of guiding people back to themselves and to finding like trusting themselves, like you said, relearning to that they're okay. Like finding that place within themselves that's already there rather than like reach some external goal. Right. Um, you know, to be more flexible or stronger or whatever this thing, you were or like losing weight, like you said, like the diet culture influences. Like, I think that's where it comes in. Like we're still, we're so externally motivated and that's the way the mind works, right? We have, we want external gratification, but this is a spiritual practice. And I think just remembering that this is a right. spiritual practice that right. begins with the idea that everybody is already whole and we need to, and actually all of yoga is about learning to turn the attention back inside in a way that feels safe for people when they're ready to connect with that place or to find kind of that safe haven within themselves when everything else feels so lost. And, and it feels like, you know, it feels different to me to begin with that at that place 
of wholeness than to begin from a place of lack. Right. And I I think, you know, this is a place where like ableism shows up sometimes too, right? This notion of like curing people, Mm -hmm. you know, or like, okay, you have this disability, injury, chronic pain, whatever it is. Like if you, if you come to yoga, then you will be made whole. Um, And I think that is, you know, maybe a, an underlying implicit message, even if not said explicitly, but it it certainly is said explicitly a lot of times. And so I think this is a big mindset shift for a lot of people that, you know, encouraging our students to really like listen to themselves and creating that sense of personal power um, Mm -hmm. is something that I think goes toward this concept of like honoring people's wholeness, you know? And let's give an example of that. Like, how does that, how is that expressed in, in real, you know, real life, uh, examples? Can you, do you have an idea? I mean, I had some thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I think one way that we can do that is through our language and the way that we teach, you know, using language like, um, of, uh, curiosity, inquiry, Mm -hmm. invitation, rather than sort of, um, I don't know, more prescriptive directions. Like for instance, rather than like align your, you know, heel of your one foot with the arch of the other foot, we might say like, what, what does it feel like when you firmly press down into the heel of your back foot and press the toes into the mat with your front foot. Like in that way, it's about, okay, what experience are you having versus like this body, this pose needs to like look a certain way. So sometimes it's just that simple. I was saying like, you know, when you're ready, move into this next pose rather than just like inhale, lift your arms. Now I'm not saying we can't be direct, but I think that, you know, the way that we introduce postures or props or, any of that stuff, we can imply, you know, sort of that there's a hierarchy and there's like a right and wrong way to do things. Or we can say there's room for your experience in here and know that that's going to change day to day and throughout your life. And maybe, you know, depending on your body and your ability and all of that stuff. So I think it leaves room for that, um, lived experience of being human, which is not the same day to day. You know, when mm-hmm. we talk in a way that like encourages student agency, encourages them to listen to themselves. And sometimes it's just like as simple as saying it out loud to normalize it. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know what feels best in your body. So if you're feeling something uh, after I give an instruction that that doesn't feel quite right, you know, if your breath gets away from you, if you're feeling pain somewhere, come out of that. Let's talk. Let's find another way to do it. That's normal. That won't be weird. You know, even just saying stuff like that to readjust people's expectations that like, Hey, you have a choice here. You have a say what happens to your body because you are, you know, the whole and sacred and sovereign person. You're not just here to, I don't know, yeah, get called through a bunch of poses like a drill sergeant or something. <laughs> well, I want to talk about that more, actually. I, I think, I don't know, you're making me think about, I think a change that's been happening in our, in the yoga world recently, and at least, you know, in the West, there's a shift towards more trauma-informed teaching and more um, invitational language. And, you know, I know that some traditional schools don't like that. Like, that's not how they work. They're very command-oriented. Like, I'll give you a small example. Um, When we give an instruction about moving a part of the body, and, and, and using a neutral, like saying, um, lift the arm, 
versus saying lift your arm. Right. And like there's a debate about that, like using possessive pronouns for part, body parts. And also around invitational language, like like you just described, instead of giving like a specific instruction on alignment, how about just exploring how this feels? I feel like there's this shift happening and I, I can hear some teachers that I know who are more traditional just being like, no, you don't understand, <laughs> you know, like right. why that works. And I just want to say like in my I think I do understand like why it works to give commands and stuff, but I actually think, and this might sound weird, but it's like a more advanced to give choice. It's actually more challenging to act, to give people agency rather than to just have them follow you along. And I think that kind of following you along and just telling them how to move their bodies is effective for some people. Um, because the mind can kind of shut off for a bit. Like you can kind of tune out in a sense and just be present with what the teacher is saying and follow along without really thinking. But I'd, like I said, I think it's more advanced to really be present and questioning and, and examining and reflecting as you're going like, wait, what does feel better? You know what I mean? Like to, to have the choice is a more challenging way to practice. Um, Believe it or not. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, I think it's the opposite of what people think. I think it's more challenging when you give people choices. They are then like stuck. Because what I find more like beginner students tend to be, to to want to be told what to do. Like it's so common for me that a beginning student's like, what should I feel here? You know, Mm -hmm. what is this doing? How do I do this? What should this look like? And they want to be told and, and in some level, in some way, we, we do that. Like as yoga teachers, we're telling people, oh, make your body into this shape. Right. It's like we got to show them what warrior two looks like at some point. Yeah. However, you right. know. They're... But then it's like, do you just have them copy you and, they, and say, okay, that's yoga? Mm-hmm. Or is it like, wait, does it feel different if you shift the weight? If you don't even move your body, but if you actually shift your weight back or shift it forward, like, which do you, you know, which, how does that feel? Which do you right. want to do? Like. How to, you know, and then because what's happening is you're actually engaging the mind and the other way of practicing where you just follow along on the instruction, the mind is quiet, which is what we want in practice. But engaging the mind in terms of like exploring the inner sensation is, I'd say, more quote advanced, right? Being conscious of interoception. That's what happens when you do your own practice. Yeah, right. You know? And interoception uh, is that sense of. Uh, being able to detect those subtle uh, interior body senses, right? Like the stuff we look for in a body scan, your your heartbeat, your blood flow, temperature, pressure, that kind of stuff. And it might sound really simple if you're listening to this, like, duh, yeah, of course, everyone can do that. But I really think that for a lot of students, teaching that interoception is like super important because a lot of people are really sort of cut off, I think, from the the actual experience of noticing and taking in what's going on in their bodies from any given moment to moment. I mean, even if you just think about like the number of people who practice yoga that are also actively dieting, right? When you think about something like dieting, where it's like you basically have to ignore the signals your body is sending you in order to follow this program of restriction or whatever that, you know, has an effect, right? If we're ignoring body signals, then at some point, you know, are Mm -hmm. we just, in, in the neck up rather than actually present in our bodies. And it's not always simple, right? Like I feel like for a lot of students with marginalized identities, it doesn't always feel safe to just like 
hang out in the body that society <laughs> hates yeah. and tells you isn't worthy all the time, you know? And so I think that, but it's a, such a gift to give students to strengthen this sort of like, I think, interior mindfulness practice or whatever the process of like teaching interoception is. Um, because I feel like the more comfortable people can be with their own bodies, the more they can trust their bodies and understand the sensations and the information that their body might be sending them, the more choice, the more power they feel like they have that allows, you know, a sense of safety, a sense of belonging, like all of those sort of like basic primal human needs can get met if, if those conditions are met. And so it's like that kind of stuff, I think bit by bit goes toward creating agency mm -hmm. in students and really like honoring their wholeness because we're not, we're not fixing their body. We're just like giving them kind of a way back home, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, giving them some tools to find that themselves. So also, I think, I think ableism shows up in the way that we make assumptions about, um, student, like students with disabilities or older students not being as good at yoga. And when I think that what I found over the years teaching a lot of people with disabilities is actually they tend to be more in touch with their bodies. Like people who have a lot of physical challenges in particular or chronic pain, for example, tend to actually be very in touch with their body because they're really living in it. They're really conscious. It's, it's, it's a challenge. And so it brings awareness to right. it. And I think that my experience has been that it's often people who are not disabled, who are less connected um, and seem more, I don't know, like in their head or whatever it is that they're doing. And I feel like um, it's another way that I've, I see, you know, accessible yoga is being more advanced. I think it's just, we make a lot of assumptions about someone's physical ability equating to their being there being like an advanced yoga practitioner or not, you know, like we have to remember what is the goal here? Um, if we look back at that sutra, it's about abiding in our true nature, connecting with ourself, our true self. Right. Yeah. So, um, maybe before we kind of like move to a different, um, topic, cause I know we want to cover a few of these, what are some of the like concrete ways that you teach, um, interoception or like teach students to like learn to listen to their bodies and that kind of stuff. I think it's, um, it's the whole point to me of asana practice is to create sensitivity to what's happening inside the body. So right. every time we ask someone to notice how they feel in a pose, notice you know, the difference between stretching and straining. Mm -hmm. Notice what happens with the breath as you move into this pose or that one. Um, notice, see if you can coordinate movement and breath. I think that's all an experience of interoception. Yeah. Um, anytime you give choice and options, that's asking people to consider how they're feeling in that moment. Um, body scans, I think, I think are really great for bringing awareness to parts of the body, just conscious, consciously bringing the mind to different places in the body, uh, noticing how they feel. Right. Um, yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I like all that stuff. I think too, um, one thing that's been really helpful for some of my students is just having a, a more guided, I don't know, teaching about, 
um, identifying sensation. Like I think for some people, they feel very sort of cut off from like, I don't know, like here's an example. Mm. Uh, At the end in Shavasana, you know, I noticed somebody who is laying in a what looks to me a very uncomfortable position. They're trying to lay flat on the floor and that's not really appropriate for their body. So I might say, if you'd like to, you know, if you don't feel comfortable, why don't you try bolster under the knees, blanket under the head? They don't do anything to change it. Even if I go over and say like, um, you might feel more comfortable if you do. Oh, I'm not uncomfortable. Then if I kind of like, I insist, just try it. And if you don't like it, you can remove them. Then mm. they like, ah, oh, relax into it. It's like almost that they didn't even realize that they were uncomfortable yeah. before. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so for some people, it, it has to start in a very basic place of like the body scan sort of stuff being like, okay, if you notice the sensation, would you give it a name? Where does it live? How intense, you know, what, how would you describe it? What color is it? You know, even that kind of stuff I think can be helpful to sort of get people, um, out of a place of like judgment. Cause I think sometimes let's say you're experiencing discomfort, you're experiencing pain, you're experiencing something like that in a class, you look around, it seems like everyone else is like, you know, in yoga heaven, and they're not feeling those things, you know, you can start to make a judgment about like, Oh, it's something wrong with my body. And then we have all the stories that society has told you about your body, all that stuff. Like now you're out of the body and in the head, you know? And so sometimes I think just like getting to those very basic things can help like depersonalize it a little bit. It's like, we're just talking about like, what is the sensation you're feeling in your foot right now? Not like Mm -hmm. what that means or whether it's going to be there forever or if it's good or bad or right or wrong. Like just like, Literally, how is your toe, (laughs) you know? And so I think sometimes like even just breaking it down to that simple level is a way in for folks that might be struggling with the sort of like, let's lay perfectly still and think about our bodies, body scan. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, And so I think the more tools that we can have to sort of like um, allow for a lot of different experiences and maybe even having a conversation with students, you know, before or after class, like how did you feel? before and after that practice, you know, did you notice that things shifted or changed and like giving folks, um, the chance to like talk mm-hmm. through that stuff, I think can be helpful too. And, and um, I think noticing energy level, like sometimes I I've seen people who, it seems like they equate relaxation with tiredness and it's almost like we have a tendency to maybe like go, 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 like, like use a lot of, um, caffeine and just be really kind of out there and going. And then we crash, you know, and we don't, it can be hard for, and no, myself included to find that kind of energized, but relaxed place that I think yoga can really give us. And it, Mm. it can be a really novel experience for people and to think, Oh, you can actually be relaxed and energized at the same time. Um, and so I would say that's nice to notice after a practice. It's like, how do you feel right now? Is Are you just tired or are you relaxed? Like, what's the difference between tired and relaxed? Mm-hmm. That's a good um, reflection. Yeah. I need to think about that one sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's talk about one more. I want to talk about, well, maybe, I don't know if we'll get to all these um, today, but we had talked about non-attachment. We wanted mm-hmm. to talk about non-attachment, mm-hmm. which is really one of my favorite teachings in the Yoga Sutras because it's kind of a underlying theme here, which is to not be focused on external gratification, but to 
like Patanjali is telling us, connect with that peace that's already there inside of us. So in uh, Book 1, Sutra 15, I'm actually going to read from a different book. This is uh, Jagannath Carrera's Inside the Yoga Sutras. I like his translation of this sutra. He says, non-attachment is the manifestation of self-mastery in one who is free from craving for objects seen or heard about. And that's a complicated sentence too. I, I guess, know. But... I feel like the sentence is always like, okay, let's break this down. <laughs> yeah. So it's the right, manifestation so... of self-mastery. So basically, I think the point there is that it's not, it's just not by accident, right? It's not about, right. non-attachment is not indifference and not, it's not not caring, right? It's yeah, not that. Right, right. It's actually about having self-mastery, like being really conscious about um, being free from desire. In particular, if you read about it more, it's generally about selfish desire that's related to your ego and mind. And, and the point being that Patanjali has already told us we have what we need inside, right? Like that piece that's within us is the source of our happiness and joy. And the mind, we, we forget it's there and we instead think in our minds that we're going to get happiness from outside. Right. We're going to achieve right. something or get something through sense satisfaction, sensory experience that's going to make us happy. And there are great experiences in the world to have. That's not that's not to say it's not fun, you know, to be in the world and experience things. But the point of the teachings are that this turning inward is actually how you find true peace and true joy rather than focusing outward, if that makes sense. Right. That like, I don't know, it feels natural to sort of like say like, okay, well, when I finally, you know, have enough money in my savings account or get into this relationship or have a baby or get this house that I want or, you know, whatever the thing is, uh, or, you know, I finally, um, you know, feel loved, right? Like there's that you can be attached to outcomes or people or things and that we know that, those are the things we can't control circumstances, other people, what other people yeah. think about us, how other people feel about us. Like the only thing we can have some effect on is our own mind and our own emotions. And mm -hmm. so I think that, um, and they're also impermanent, like those yeah. things come and go. And I think that's, that's right. the point of the teachings is like, you can't base your happiness on something that's temporary. Um, I mean, you can enjoy them for the moment, but you know, that's not where you should really invest your energy. And that's really the whole point of spiritual practice is investing your time and energy in some, in something that'll really pay off, you know, which is the fact that it's actually within your own heart, right? What you're seeking that's is right. within. Yeah. You're yeah. investing in yourself too, which I think, you know, the more self-aware that we are, the more we're able to, I think, you know, get to that place of, allowing people to show up as they are and not being attached to like a certain idea of the way a relationship might look or, a, you know, an outcome of, you know, oh, well, I, I went to school and I got this degree and I, you know, did this thing. And so then mm -hmm. I should have this exact result, you know, like that. I think um, it can actually make us more resilient and more able to like relate to other people better if we can allow people to just kind of like be who they are and not be attached to like, I don't know, some future dream version that we, exactly. <laughs> some idea of the way they right. thought we do. And, and also that it's about the desire itself causing pain. So 
according, like Patanjali says later in, in um, chapter or book two, he says that, you know, desire is actually the root of suffering and the cause of our karma. And that, you know, to be free from suffering is basically to let go of selfish desire, meaning that you no longer think that something out there that you're wanting or craving is going to make you happy. You realize that happiness and peace arise from within you. And it changes the way we live in the world. It actually, when you're not, when you're internally focused in that way, I think it means that your actions don't come out of selfishness and can be of service. Like that's where, that's what service is for. Service is about acting in a way where you're not looking for your own um, satisfaction of your own desires, right? You're just serving out of love and care for others and connection um, because you have found what you need inside. And that's, that's challenging. That's why service is, I think, the most challenging practice of yoga, karma yoga. Um, but it's based on this idea of non-attachment. But anyway, people tend to think non-attachment means just like not like giving away your possessions. Right. <laughs> or, or, or not caring about anything. Or not caring. <laughs> neither yeah, one of those. No, no, yeah. it's, um, all right. It's, so how do we want to apply this to, um, teaching practice? Then? Okay. Yeah, that's good. Um, well, I think as a teacher being non-attached to the result of your teaching, meaning that you don't, you're not dependent on student feedback, like, you know what I mean? Like for them yep. to say, oh, you did a great job or that was a great class or for them to like get better at something like you're not you're not dependent on them and that you're there serving your students, meaning that like hopefully they're you're getting paid or you feel like you're getting what you need in like compensation for the class and that that that's what they're giving you. And so you're there just to serve them. Right. Your job is to be there present um, being able to share the teachings as would be most beneficial for them in that moment, um, without focusing on yourself, either your ego, like having to be lifted up as like a great teacher or for them to even like you or even to do exactly what you say. Right. Right. Like maybe they do it differently. Maybe you instruct a pose and then they're like, they do something totally different. How does that feel for you? Like, mm -hmm. I know, I remember when I was starting it, when I was a beginner teacher, I just didn't know what to do when the students did something else, right? Like if someone did, had their own practice and would just like go off on their own, I, I thought, oh, I'm really bad or I don't know what I'm doing. And it's like, you know what? Like, Yeah, or that you need to correct to that student or something. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah, what else? How else can you... How else can yeah. you practice non-attachment as a teacher? Well, I think, you know, one, this is kind of what you were touching on, I think, but like checking your ego around, like if people practice in a different way that maybe you didn't exactly cue, does that make you feel some kind of way? And then like, let's dig into that. You know, that for me is like, whenever I feel that kind of like, like irritation or discomfort or something, then I know that's usually some ego thing that I need to investigate. And so, you know, what is that about? Is that about you feeling like you're not um, maybe confident enough that, oh, do I not have the knowledge to like help this person or, or whatever is happening in that moment? You know, I think that um, one way that we can practice non-attachment with our students is just like literally understanding that they are responsible for their own personal practice, their body, the way that they show up in practice. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we leave room for that, you know, not just one type of student 
or one type of experience, but mm-hmm. um, that people show up and get what they need from the class or from you. Um, and that might be different for everybody. And so... And I, I think, I, think that, I would just say as a yoga therapist, like this is also particularly challenging. If you work with someone who has a chronic illness or who's like near the end of their life, I, I know this is really where it came up for me when I had students who were dying. And it's like, is your job to stop them from dying? Like to physically heal them? Like what is it that we right. think we're doing sometimes? So like you really have to get into a place of kind of acceptance about what your role is and what it is that you can offer as a yoga teacher or, and as a yoga therapist, if that's your role. Um, and I think that's where yoga therapy can be confusing for people and maybe is very complicated because therapy has a sense of improvement in that word, you know, or getting better. And I think we right. have to be careful with that. I, I think we need to still practice non-attachment as yoga therapists where we're not attached to the outcome of our work, that students don't have to be fixed or cured or get better and that they might get sicker and die. I mean, they're going to die, right? They're going to get sicker. That's just going to happen. It's unavoidable. So how can you be present and loving and caring for them without being focused on the result? Even though you want them to have less suffering, right? You want them to to have peace. Can you do that by embodying that teaching yourself, right? That could be freeing for them. Yeah. And, you know, I think sometimes like... Maybe we're not seeing, you know, the result or the outcome that we expected, but we don't really know how it might affect them down the line. Mm. You know, like one example for me is like a lot of my teaching work has been around body acceptance, like through the lens of the yoga teachings. And then I have people that will like go through a program or a class or come to retreats or whatever. And then later they, you know, get plastic surgery or they go on diets and they modify their bodies and blah, 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 you know. And it's like I can either get like, oh, well, they weren't even listening to a thing that Uh I said, you know, like you can kind of go to that place or I could be really sad about it. Like, oh, I wish this person didn't have to feel this way about themselves. Yeah. But like, we don't know, you know, like how that stuff hit them, how the yoga practice that they have experienced, like will prepare them for, um, you know, whatever part of that journey. And like, you know, not everybody is going to connect with the things that we say or the, the way that we teach. And so I think, um, you know, mm. for me, realizing that, like, I'm not the teacher for everybody sometimes is a way of, like, check my ego around that kind of stuff. That, like, students have their own, you know, journey and their own practice. And like you said, I'm here to be of service. I have some knowledge that I think can help people. I have some inquiries that I can guide y'all through to help get in touch with your bodies. But, like, from that point, it's up to y'all to, like, take it and decide what you want to do with it, you know. And yeah. I think, you know, showing up in a way that's, like, generous and open and clear, um, without getting too wrapped up in the outcomes or too entangled in the, like, um, I don't know, taking it personal when Mm -hmm. the practice looks different than what we expect or the outcome looks different or people decide to take a different path and maybe this isn't for them, you know, like that, I think that's an opportunity for us to reconnect as teachers to like, what's our why? Like, what is the heart of this service that we have decided to do by teaching yoga? Like get back connected with that rather than focusing on like what didn't turn out the way that mm-hmm. we thought it would because, you mm. know, that's awesome. I don't know I for that. me that, yeah, that that's a piece of it. Um, okay. Can we do one more? Yeah. Um, yeah. And this is important because I think it's really essential as a yoga teacher and that's to 
practice ethics. And in the yoga, in the yoga teachings and the yoga sutras, we have the yamas, which are really a lot of ethical practices. Um, and one in particular we want to talk about is brahmacharya. Um, this is described in book two, sutra 38. I'm actually going to read, this is from uh, Nishula Devi, the secret power of yoga. She was a guest on the podcast just a few episodes ago. So you can go back and listen to her. She translates this as um, devoted to living a balanced and moderate life, brahmacharya. The scope of one's life force becomes boundless. That was really cool. Mm -hmm. Living a balanced, moderate life, the scope of one's life force becomes boundless. But, you know, brahmacharya usually, it means celibacy traditionally when these teachings were designed for monks and right. it was about them not having sex. And then, you know, these days it's often translated as, you know, kind of moderation. Yeah, or like right use of energy right or something like energy. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it has to do with actually in the translation, the real translation of the word, it's about focusing your energy on the divine or on yeah. God. And in a way, it's like focusing your energy on spiritual practice instead of human relationships and sex and, sex and romantic mm -hmm. relationships, which is where I think, you know, our minds go a lot. Right, external things. Human, yeah. right. external things, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if... Why is that so important as yoga teachers? <laughs> well, I think this speaks to a couple of things, right? Like one, if we want to talk about celibacy, since sex came up, um, don't have sex with your students. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's, it's important for teachers to have boundaries, I think, um, appropriate boundaries, knowing that I think it's. I think it's crucial as teachers to realize the power differential that exists simply because of the teacher-student relationship. And that implies a lot of things, right? Like students may not feel as free to give you feedback about something because we've been socialized to defer to teachers and to do what authority figures tell us to do. Um, they may feel like they want to please the teacher because that's like another thing, you know? And so we have all these ways that I think just the way that culture shows up with power and hierarchy and stuff like that, that we just need to be aware of because these students often come to us, you know, maybe for a workout, maybe for, you know, inner peace or whatever they think yoga is going to give them. But some of them come to us for spiritual direction. Um, they bring us uh, issues that they're having in their personal lives, their professional lives. Like I think yoga teachers often, you know, in, in, um, end up, um, in roles that are more intimate in a relationship sort of way than like the Zumba instructor would. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. And so I think that like, we just have to be really aware of the power that we hold as teachers sometimes, which means having appropriate boundaries with our students, like not entering into sexual or inappropriately personal relationships with someone who we are uh, in, in certain ways in an authority uh, position over, even if that's just optics. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I would say it even, I would go back to non-attachment maybe and reflect on how you can be in relationship. Because the thing is, actually, we are in relationship with our students, but I think That's it's right. different than having a relationship. It's like, mm -hmm. what is the relationship that that is appropriate for a teacher to have with their student? And I think, to me, it's a, it's a relationship that's based on non-attachment, meaning that you have no expectations. Like you're not, as a teacher, you're not looking for anything from your students. You're not looking to get anything back from them. Again, they're paying you probably, right? Like they're paying you 
cash to take your class. They're giving you money. Right. And then your job is to say, okay, you already gave me this money or this payment or whatever this is. So my job is to serve you without expecting anything else uh, back from you. I, you don't need to praise me. You don't need to be my friend. You don't need to be my romantic partner because I'm here to serve you as your yoga instructor, yoga teacher. And I feel like not expecting anything back is what will keep that relationship safe yeah. for the student. And, and also for the teacher, like it's a boundary for you. You know, it allows you to be professional. And I think it's almost a definition of being professional is not expecting something back from a client, right? It's like, you know, if you, as a teacher, it's important to get your needs met, but you need to do that somewhere else. Like you need to have friends. You need to have romance in your life if you want, but outside of the class. And if someone comes to you as a student, you cannot expect anything back from them at all, right? You're there to serve them. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction. Like, and that, you know, I think I've heard a lot of questions of like, well, you know, okay, what am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? Like, if I, you know, talk to them in class is okay, but if I send them a text message outside class, it's uh, inappropriate. And it's kind of like, okay, well, there's not really this hard and fast checklist in that way. But I think the way that you've defined it of like, what are you expecting out of this is a really mm-hmm. good way to kind of check ourselves and be like, are you expecting students to, you know, feed your ego, be your friend, be your romantic partner, you know, like all of those types of things. That's different than, you know, I'm here, I'm connected with my mission and I'm here to like share these teachings and be of service. And so I think that's a really good test of, Mm -hmm. you know, is this a boundary I should set or not? Um, Yeah. And, um, you know, I think really exploring this personally is important to really spend time thinking about um, your past experiences as a student, as well as a teacher. Like, how does it feel for you when you were a student in someone else's class? What felt best for you? Like, what kind of boundaries did worked for you as a as a student? Right. And how might that? help you understand how to create boundaries as a teacher. And by the way, like I think boundaries is like another word for non-attachment. Like I really love that word boundaries. It's like, it's not a negative thing. Um, a boundary is a tool, you know, to remind us to turn within rather than to look outside Mm -hmm. or to look to somebody else. And, um, that's what yoga is all about. And so I think that's really the, the theme here for, for this whole episode is just like, it's not easy, but I think to try to do the practice to, to find what we need in ourselves or somewhere else in our lives rather than to find it in our relationships with our students. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I think, you know, one other thing that comes up for me here is like scope of practice stuff too. It's mm. like a kind of different kind of boundary, but just really remembering that like as teachers, we are here to be of service and, teach yoga, not be someone's therapist or nutritionist or BFF or, Mm. um, you know, counselor or, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever that whole list of, of things that people come to us for. And so I think one thing that's really useful for every teacher to do is to sort of like know your lane and stay in it. You know, we're not massage therapists. We're not dietitians. We're not, you're not any of those things unless you are separately. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and that, you know, 
when folks come to you with those types of issues, understanding like what's appropriate for you to be able to work mm-hmm. with and what you need to refer out to. So do you have, you know, a list of referrals of a dietitian, a nutritionist, massage therapist, physical therapist, you know, all of those type of like kind of semi-related things that might come up um, that you can say, you know, I'm not the person to help you with this. I want to make sure you get appropriate and professional help. And so here's a list of some people that might be able to work with Mm -hmm. you on that. You know, like I think in the moment it can be really hard if like someone comes to you, you know, crying with an issue, then it's like, okay, you just want to talk to them like they're your friend. But like in that case, maybe it's like a therapist is the more appropriate professional to address that because they have training and they have um, a different role to play. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really essential, Um, reflecting on scope of practice, reflecting on your personal ethics, like what are your personal, your, what's your personal code of ethics, you know, that you have in your life Um, and how, how can you best be of service to your students by being ethical um, and practicing brahmacharya um, in your own life? Yeah, I feel like we could go on. I mean, I I just right. want to say like I'm trying to <laughs> stop myself because like there's I love this topic and I feel like this could be you know, a whole Maybe book. we need a maybe we need a part 2 of of this yeah, episode. Maybe. We can All pick right. some more. So, <laughs> I know it's getting long here, so I kind of want to wrap it up. I just wondered yeah. if you had any other thoughts. Um Hmm. What's a question that we could leave people with sort of a, an inquiry around this kind of stuff? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Let's think about well, that. Well, what is your personal code of ethics? Like, mm, can you... yeah, that might be a good thing to do. Yeah. yeah have you, you written write... that down? Like, have you really thought about that and created your own sort of like code of ethics? You know, um, I don't know. What's some examples of this type of stuff that would go in there? Um, I think what would go in there is like, how do you respond when someone, you know, questions your pricing for your classes? Like, what are your guidelines? What are the rules that you use, that you run your, you know, yoga business by? Um, how, what are your peer relationships like, um, mm-hmm. you know, with other teachers? And that's the other thing I would add. I, again, I don't want to go on, but I would just say, like, part of the answer to this around brahmacharya for me is having strong peer relationships with other yoga teachers where you can share openly um, and right. get support, right? Like that's really helpful. Uh, but in a personal code of ethics, I think you could talk about that. Maybe you could um, talk about, I don't know, what do you think? The rules that you, you that you teach by. That's right. Like yeah. what do you think? Going there? And noticing, I think, um, you know, in your, because everyone's, I guess, teaching situation is a little bit different, but in your own personal teaching, like, um, you know, how much, uh, have you done to sort of like encourage, um, you know, student choice and agency versus like your own as a teacher, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe Um, all the things we talked about today could be in there. You could look at how are you practicing yoga and the way you teach? Are you seeing the other students fullness when you're seeing their students fullness when you're teaching them? Like, do you begin there? And how, how is that um, expressed and manifested in your teaching? How, how do you express non-attachment to your students' progress, to how they respond to your teaching? Um, how, yeah, how can you practice yoga in the way you're teaching? 
teaching as a practice. Yeah, I love it. All right. Okay. Maybe we should wrap up since we're uh, almost at an hour. Oh and I feel gosh. like we could ramble about this for a long time. But we'd love to hear from y'all if you um, – if you have ideas about how you embody this kind of stuff in your teaching or ways that you found to, um, to really, I don't know, live out and, and model for your students, uh, this practice, we'd love to hear from you. Yes. Great. Thank you so much, Amber. And thanks everyone. All right. See you next time. Okay. Bye. Thanks for joining us for the accessible yoga podcast. We're so grateful to be in community with you. Please check out our website, accessibleyoga.org, to find out more about our upcoming programs, including our annual Accessible Yoga Conference. At our website, you can also learn more about how to become an Accessible Yoga Ambassador and support the work that we are doing in the world. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can also submit a question or suggest a topic or potential guest you'd like us to interview at accessibleyoga.org. See you next time.